And I want you to know that your safety is my primary concern, so I'm going to preach until all the snow melts. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it wasn't nervous laughter. Let's go to the Gospel of John. Hopefully you've been reading in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read. I'm going to attempt to preach through the prologue this, this morning. And I'm going to try to make more progress than I made in the Gospel of John last time. Because I have somewhere that I want to go with this. I want, to, I want us to go through the first three chapters. Good Lord willing. And if Jesus tarries, and if I live long enough, I want to. I want us to go to the upper room with Jesus uh, as we lead up to the Passion Week and preach through that discourse. And I think it'll be a great blessing to you as we go through it. But the the prologue of John, it it functions much like an overture. I don't know how many of you have been to an opera or a symphony, and there's an overture, and the overture will give you uh, little placards or little glimpses of previews of coming attractions and as we go through this prologue we're going to see little glimpses as it were of what John is going to share with us in, in later subsequent uh, verses and chapters in the gospel of John so as we get ready to uh, break open the bread of life here I'm going to ask you to pray with me <clears throat> Heavenly Father I thank you for your word I thank you for the opportunity to be here and I thank you for those who are joining us in person, those of us, uh, those who are listening on the FM transmitter, those who are uh, joining us on Facebook, those who will listen on the podcast, those who will listen on YouTube in the days ahead and weeks ahead. Father, I just pray that you would guide my speech. Lord, help me to be plain. Uh, you, to use great plainness of speech, Lord. And uh, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. God, I ask for your anointing. I ask that the preaching of the word today would not be with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of God. That the faith of, of mankind would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I'm going to give you the glory for everything that you will accomplish, because your word will never return void. And so we know this is not an exercise in futility. This is, uh, this is something that's going to yield a great harvest. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we covered the last three verses last time, but I'm going to read them again. The first three verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I'm not going to quote it to you from the Greek, although I've just had the Greek, that John 1 and the Greek rolling over in my head. I woke up the other night hearing first uh, John 1, 1 in Greek in my, in my uh, I woke up from sleep. With that, and it is so important because the way that that first verse is constructed in the Greek, there is no ambiguity. That number one, God is not a unitarian God; he's he's a he's a triune being. But also that Jesus Christ, even though he is distinct from the Father, he is just as much God as the Father is. And that's where all of the cultic groups go wrong. They're going to have some misconception either about the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. And, and John deals with both in his gospel. But there is no ambiguity whatsoever in the Greek that the word is a distinct entity, the logos, Jesus Christ, the eternal word. And he is 
God just as much as the Father is God. Now, verse 2 might seem to be uh, a needless repetition, but it hammers the point home to us that the same was in the beginning with God. Let me say it this way. Before man was ever created, God was a fellowship. There was a perfect fellowship existing between the Father and the Word and one other entity that we'll talk about later, especially when we get to that upper room. That is the third person of the Trinity. That is, in Hebrew, the Ruach HaKodesh. In Greek, the Hagias Numa, the Holy Spirit of God. And He is a person. He is not a force, not some inanimate uh, uh, entity. He is a person. And we, it's hard to read John 1 without hearkening back to Genesis 1. It reads very much like Genesis, and that is exactly John's intention, is to take us back to the beginning. Before there was anything in the world, there was God. Before there was a universe, before there were planets, before there were uh, trees and rivers and streams and animals and human beings, before all of that, there was God. And Jesus Christ was there at the beginning of creation. And there was a perfect fellowship. Now in verse 1, there's a phrase in the Greek there. It says, proston theon. And it means face to face. Where it says that the word was with God, it implies in the Greek that they were face to face. They were in an intimate relationship, one with another. The Father and the Son in this intimate relationship with one another. A perfect fellowship. God did not create man because he needed company. And that's an important thing to realize. Because within the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was perfect fellowship. God did not need friends. His creation of mankind was purely out of love. Purely out of love and grace and mercy. The Word was with God and the Word was God and the same was in the beginning with God. There was perfect fellowship there in that eternal Council of God. We read about that in Genesis 1. Kind of a curious thing, and it makes you wonder why none of the Jewish folks can seem to grasp it. Remember that, that famous phrase in Genesis 1 where it says, God said, let us make man in our image. He wasn't talking to the angels there. That was a divine council between the members of the Trinity, the Godhead. Let us make man in our image. Verse 3, he says, all things were made by him and without him, and that is the Logos, that's Jesus, without the eternal word was not anything made that was made. Jesus never came to be. He always was. He is distinct from his creation. He was not made, <laughs> but he made everything. The New Testament writer stated this way in Colossians 1. Verse 16, it says, For by him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, invisible and visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I love the way the NIV renders it. Christ is holding all things together. Jesus, if I could use this really crude analogy, Jesus is the glue that's holding this world together. Amen. Do you wonder why the world just didn't completely go off the tracks? I mean, it seems like it's going to from time to time when we read the news and we watch the 
the news and the world news, and it seems like things are just on a collision course with catastrophe and disaster. I'm not worried about the world ending and just a, a, just nuking, you know, just some kind of a big bang. You know, people think the world started with a big bang, that they're just going to end with a big bang. But listen, Jesus Christ is holding this world together, and this world is not going to disintegrate. This world is going to be preserved because Jesus himself is coming back to rule and reign on planet Earth. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. So I'm not worried about some man blowing up the earth with an atomic bomb because Jesus Christ is coming here to rule on this very planet where you and I have our feet planted this morning. The book of Hebrews also expresses this. And we've been studying. If you've been missing out on our Wednesday night studies, uh, catch up with us. Watch these studies on YouTube and Facebook. It says in Hebrews 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. The New Testament is in perfect agreement that Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. These are two of the prominent motifs in the Gospel of John. Life which is more than just breathing, more than just growing, more than just um, heartbeats and blood pumping and, and photosynthesis and all of that stuff. It is zoe in the Greek. It is a quality of life as well as a quantity of life. It is a, uh, an eternal life that only Christ himself can give. Life and light. These are the prominent themes in the Gospel of John. You either have life or you don't. If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. And even though you may be breathing, even though your heart may be beating, you are among the walking dead. And that is a difficult concept. You're either walking in light or you're walking in the darkness. But it says that Jesus, this life was the light of men. Verse 5 says that the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. Now some of you, your translations may say that the darkness did not overcome the light. And the reason being is there's some ambiguity with the word in the Greek, katalambano. And it's very similar to our word grasp. You realize the word grasp has several levels of meaning. I can grasp this book in my hand, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'll grasp it you know, internally, intellectually, cognitively. And, and it's the same way. And I think John leaves this word here to, to leave some ambiguity because it, both meanings are true. The light came and the darkness certainly didn't understand. You know, every time Jesus tried to give an example of spiritual things, they interpreted it in a natural way, it would seem. Even his disciples, even the most learned teacher, Nicodemus, he didn't understand when Jesus was speaking of the new birth. And the woman in the well thought Jesus was talking about well water. And when he was feeding the 5,000 and he talked about eating his flesh, they didn't understand all of those things. They interpreted them in a natural way. But you could also say that the darkness did not overcome the light. You know, all it takes is one candle to dispel all of the darkness in the room. That's all it takes. And Jesus said that you and I, as believers, as followers of him, that we are the light of the world. I want to ask you this. Is your light shining or have you put it under a bushel? Are you letting your light shine? Are you shining? As God said that we are to be, we are to be a city set on a hill, a light that gives light to all those who are around. 
God's word is a light. Now he shifts into verse 6 and he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now in the fourth gospel, he's not called the Baptist, but we know that this is John the Baptist. And his emphasis here, uh, John, son of Zebedee, his interest in John the Baptist is not necessarily his baptizing ministry, but his role, as it were, as a witness. Now the word witness is a prominent theme throughout the gospel of John too, and in the letters of John. And this word witness is where we get our English word martyr from. Interestingly enough, it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. You know, John did not begin his ministry of his own initiative. He was called of God. He was prophesied about in the old covenant. He was a miraculous birth. Now, he wasn't a virgin birth like Jesus, but he was a miraculous birth. And he was one of the, the, the greatest uh, figures in the Bible. Jesus said among those that are born of, uh, of men and women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing statement. Think about that. Think about Moses. Think about Elijah. Think about all of the great men and women in the Bible. King David. But Jesus Christ said that there is none greater than John the Baptist. However, he said, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Now, how could he say that? He could say that because John the Baptist, as great as he was, he was an Old Testament saint. He died before the cross and the resurrection. And you and I have a better covenant established upon better promises. And if you've been coming on Wednesday night, you know that already. But if not, I'm just going to keep on scolding you until you start coming on Wednesday night. <laughs> read, read it. Um, catch up with those videos, please, on, in Hebrews. I know some of you can't make it on Wednesday night. Uh, verse 7. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might do what? Believe. Believe. That is the aim. Remember, that's the aim of John's gospel to begin with. John said, these things have I written unto you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through his name. That is the purpose. And this was the purpose of John's ministry. John's ministry was a preparatory ministry. John's ministry was not a means to an end in itself. John's ministry was always intended to be temporary, and it was intended to be preparatory. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. And John hammers that point home in verse 8. He says, He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, this does not cast aspersion on John. Some commentators believe that, that, that John wrote this as a polemic against John the Baptist because apparently there were some, even uh, in, when John wrote this gospel, there were some that were still following John the Baptist. There were still little cultic groups that followed John the Baptist. And that may be part of it, but I don't really think, I, because the Gospel of John speaks very favorably of John the Baptist. So I, I don't think that this is some kind of polemic against John the Baptist here. But I think it's just showing that John, that he was a preparatory ministry, and that his light was pointing ultimately to the light. Even John later on, in, John the Baptist later on in this Gospel, out of his own mouth, he will say, he must increase and I must decrease. John understood that. He understood his role in the greater scheme of things. And beloved, may I suggest to you that you and I, our role is not to be uh, the light. Our, we're not to be shining the light ourselves. We are to be reflecting the glory of God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. That's the reason that we let our light shine. 
Not so that we can be in the spotlight. Verse 9, that was the true light. Now this is another word that John uses a lot. True, truth. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free, shall set you free. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Jesus' words are true. Truth is the prominent theme along with life and light and witness in the gospel of, of, G, of John. Now, when he says this is the true light, it doesn't mean that the others were fake. <laughs> doesn't mean that the others were false, you know. But it means that Jesus Christ is the zenith. He's the apex. He's the summit of all the, of all the other light uh, that had heretofore had come. We sang about that this morning, too. The word of God, the Bible says, is a lamp unto our feet, right? A light unto our path. So God's word is a light. The lamp is it's a lamp to our feet. And John was a light. Even Jesus Christ said that John was a burning light, you see. But he was pointing to the ultimate light, the true light, the one of whom the Bible spoke of, prophesied about. Jesus is the consummation. He is the substance of all the, sh uh, the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. Now, since he's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. Now, what on earth does that mean? I, you know, the theologians are, are divided about what this means. Is he talking about the men who come into the world, or is he talking about the Son, Jesus, who comes into the world? And there is some ambiguity there. But I just want to focus on the fact that Christ does give light to every man. Every man has light. You know, every human being, this is Sanctity of Life Month, and I would be remiss if I didn't make mention of that, and I'll talk more about that. Uh, at the conclusion of the service here. But, you know, Sanctity of Life Month, understand this, life is a precious thing. <coughs> life is precious, whether it's a baby in the mother's womb. You know, God made a statement about the sanctity of life by the virgin birth, didn't he? Yeah. God thought so much about human beings that he became one. And he came in a most ordinary way, didn't he? God came to be in Mary's womb. Conception begins... Life begins at conception. That's the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview will not make any room or allowances for abortion. It just won't. Sanctity of life. God, God is the giver, the sustainer of life. It lights every man that comes in the world. You know, every man is created in the image of God. It's an amazing thing. I look around, and that's why the devil hates us so bad. It's not because we're so special. It's because when he sees us, he's reminded of God because we're made in his image. You and I are. Life is precious. You know, every man has the light of, of God. I want to read to you from the, from the book of Romans and the first chapter. And it says in Romans 1, verse uh, 19... Because that which may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Every man instinctively knows there's a God. They do. We know. I mean, anybody with half a brain can understand that all of the processes that sustain life would not be possible without a creator. I mean, good grief. Just think for a moment about planet Earth. We're, we're here in this building right now, 
And we don't realize it, but the earth is spinning around and around and around. And the earth, by the way, is going around the sun. And we, if God didn't put all that stuff in balance, I mean, it would be a chaotic mess. I don't have time to go into science, and I'm not a scientist. But I'm just here to tell you that science and the Bible are not opposed to one another. I mean, science will uphold the Word of God. Just give some thought to it for a moment. If there is no God and the universe is just in chaos, I mean, it would just be, there's no way. There's no way that human beings could just come from matter and energy, you know. God is the intelligent design. He likes every man that comes into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Amazing. I'm reminded of the words of Phil Kagey, the great guitar player, Christian artist. He said, he died upon a cross of wood, and yet he made the hill on which it stood. Think about that. He came into his own creation, and the world did not know him. I want you to think about the things that maybe you admire the most in the world. I was thinking about that this week. God just, just had me musing on these things. Think about, I was listening to some, uh, some classical music. I was listening to Bach and Mozart. And, uh, and, you know, I was thinking, how in the world can these people come up with these things? Right, Beethoven. I mean, this, the most beautiful music in the world. You know where that came from? It came from God. Think about the most beautiful painting you've ever seen. Maybe you like uh, Thomas Kincaid or, or someone like that. Who gave him the ability to paint like that? God. Think about some of the most brilliant minds. Steve Jobs. Someone uh, that, you know, that invented the, the iPhone and all of that technology. Stephen Hawking. Some of the most brilliant men on the face of the earth. Who gave them? God. Their knowledge, God. Even the universe itself, scientists have proven that the universe itself is finite. It can be measured. That in itself shows that there's a creator outside of time and space. Verse 11. He came into his own, and his own received him not. That's rather shocking, isn't it? You might expect that the Creator would have a warm reception. But even at His birth, we get some hint of this, don't we? Because there's no room for Him. At the end, the world has no room for Jesus. I'm going to ask you, have you made room for Him? Like the old Christmas carol says, let every heart prepare Him room. Have you prepared room in your heart for God? Are you ready to receive your Creator? Have you prepared? Is there any room for God in your life? Or have you just crowded it out with stuff, with things, with your own opinions, with your own conjectures about what the world is? Is there any room for the Creator in your life? What a sad commentary that He came into His own and His own received Him not. That's a tragic, tragic statement. Now, uh, it speaks broadly in the broad context of creation itself, human beings. But in a more narrow sense, He came into His own people. He came not, he, he didn't, he wasn't born. Jesus Christ was not born in Greece or in Rome or in South America or India. He came to Israel and he was born among the Jewish people and the tribe of Judah. He came to the very people that should have recognized him, should have welcomed him with open arms because every one of their scriptures from Genesis all the way to Malachi 
had prophesied not only of what he would be, who he would be, where he would come from, the lineage of, uh, but precisely when he would come. Remember, we studied that in the book of Daniel. Gabriel told Daniel exactly when Jesus would come. And they totally missed it. He came into his own people. And they did not receive him. That's tragic. But it sets us up for verse 12. I love verse 12. But as many as received him. Notice there's no other qualifiers there. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be uh, raised Baptist. You don't have to come from a, a long line of, of preachers or, or, or religious people. But whoever receives him, doesn't matter what your uh, ethnic background is. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. But if you receive him, if you receive Christ, to them, now the King James says gave you power, and the Greek word here is exousia. And I think in this particular instance, it might better be translated the right or the authority. It's the same, same uh, idea is conveyed. There are various words for power. Exousia is one of them. Dunamis is one. But uh, I think exousia is the proper one here because it speaks of the authority, the right, if you will. Now, again, the King James says the sons of God. The Greek word is technon. It means children. Now, it's a little nuance here, and I, and I realize some of us don't care about those nuances, but I do, and so just indulge me for a moment. John, in his gospel, he presents Jesus as the only son. He's the only begotten son of the father. Monogenes is the Greek word. He's the only begotten son. And so in John's uh, phraseology, I know that's probably not a word, but in John's verbiage, we are children of God and Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Now when Paul writes, he uses sons of God. The Greek word for sons is weos. Paul often will say weos theos, which is sons of God. And you can use those interchangeably. There's no... There's no heresy one way or the other, but John prefers to say that we are the children, of, we are the technon of God. We are the children of God. What qualifies us to become the children of God? Receiving Jesus. I hear people say this erroneous statement all of the time, and it bothers me. I let stuff bother me sometimes. People will say, we're all God's children. You ever heard that? That's a lie. That's a lie. We are all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. Those who become children are the ones who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To those, not any other group, but to those that receive him, to them gave he the authority or the right to be called the children of God. The Bible says that the devil has children also. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And again, he reiterates the point. Even to them that believe in his name. To believe in his name means to believe in all that he is, all that he says about himself, his authority, his personhood, his nature, his ministry, to receive him. Now, verse 13 might mess with your theology, but that's okay. I'm, a, I'm to the point now where I'll let the Bible mess with my theology if my theology is wrong. Let me be a liar and let God be true. I mean, the truth will, will withstand scrutiny. The truth will with, withstand scrutiny. You don't have to worry about it. You know, the truth will prevail. 
as many as received him, he says, which were born. Now, there's three, three qualifiers here. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Some translations will say the will of a husband. But of God. So there are three things here that won't make you a Christian, that won't save your soul. Okay? And there may be some overlap here, so I'm not going to try to make sharp distinctions here. But the basic idea is this. You can't be saved by being born into the right family. John the Baptist made that clear. You know why John the Baptist's ministry was so radical? In, in, in John's day, they didn't baptize Jewish people. They baptized Gentiles who wanted to become converts to Judaism. But John's ministry was radical because he was calling on Jews to be baptized, you see. And that's why the Pharisees, were all, their feathers were ruffled. Because they're like, why is he baptizing Jews? And, and John, you know, he didn't read that book on how to win friends and influence people. He says, oh, you brood of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He says, don't think to yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. He said, I say to you, God is able to raise up from these stones sons and daughters unto Abraham. It's not about natural descent, and it's not about the will of man. I worked with a lady one time. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And we were, I used to work on Sundays a long time ago. And, uh, and I don't condemn people to have to work on Sunday. If you've never had an employer that made you work on Sunday, thank God for it. And, and some people have to, and they're forced to because of their situation. And, uh, and so we pray for them that maybe one day they'll be able to get a job where they can uh, attend services on Sunday, but I worked on Sunday, and I, I and I was uh, I was working with this lady, and we were talking about church people, because because uh, church people, you know, they can act ugly sometimes, and and she told me she said, you know, one of these days I'm gonna get saved, I'm gonna go down to that church and I'm gonna get saved, and I thought, well, I'm not sure that's how that works, <laughs> and the Bible says that's not how that works. Some of you, that's how you're thinking. Some of you have worked it out in your minds. Okay, I'm going to live my whole life. I'm going to do everything I want to do. And then when I get to be 70, 80, 90 years old, on my deathbed, well, then I'll get right with God, just like the thief on the cross. Well, listen, the thief on the cross, he didn't have any other choice. I mean, he was, he was in dire straits. And Christ was there. And Christ did forgive him. And said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Thank God for that. Amen. Thank God for the thief on the cross. But listen, you may not have the privilege of planning your own demise. You may not have the privilege of anticipating your own death. Death comes suddenly for some. There's a lot of people today that woke up this morning not realizing they're going to die today. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And I don't have a world calendar, a world clock to show you how many people are dying every second around the world. People are dying. And if the Bible's true, most of them are leaving this world and going into a Christless eternity, which is a terrifying thought. Not born of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God alone determines the timing of the new birth. God alone. So I would suggest to you that if God's dealing with you today, don't put it off. There may not come another day when God knocks on the door of your heart. He said, my spirit will not always strive with man. And I don't think that's the context. 
of that verse, but you could use it. God, we have no guarantee that, that today's grace will become next week's grace. We have no guarantee. Respond. You know, the Bible always says that today is the day of salvation, not next week, not next year. All right, verse 14. And the word, this picks up on this theme from verse 1. The last time we, we heard about the Logos was in verse 1, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And now he picks up on that theme in verse 14. And the word was made flesh. The one who never came to be, came to be one of us. Amen. Praise God. Amen. The word was made flesh. In English it says, and dwelt among us. The Greek word is skanao, and it means the tabernacle among us. And the allusions here to the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness are, are so overt that we would be foolish to miss the, the allusion here. The word, and some believe, some use this verse to, to teach that Jesus was born on the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. It, you know, it, it, it's not going to affect my theology one way or the other. It's, it's food for thought. Maybe he, he was born on the Feast of Tabernacles. But one thing is true. We know that God came to tabernacle among us. And it says he dwelt among us. Now notice this parenthetical phrase here. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's think just for a moment for the tabernacle. Stay with me here as the snow is thawing out. Stay with me for just a few more moments. Okay. Do you know anything about the Old Testament tabernacle? Well, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you'd know about it. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, the Old Testament tabernacle, this was this localized, in the Old Testament, okay, when they were wandering around in the wilderness, there was this Old Testament tabernacle that God commanded Moses to construct. He gave them the exact dimensions and all of the furnishings and how it ought to be uh, the ministry and how the layout of the tabernacle and all that stuff. God gave Moses precise instructions and he says, see to it that you make it exactly according to the pattern that I gave you, okay? And the reason is that tabernacle is a picture of the Messiah. Now, it's a blurry picture. It's a type or a shadow. It's a parable, as it were. But it is a figure of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, in the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle was the localized presence of God, okay? If you wanted to meet with God in the Old Testament, the only way you could meet with God was where that tabernacle was, okay? Now, um, if you know anything about the tabernacle, you know that not everybody could go into the tabernacle, okay? The, the Gentiles couldn't even come to the inner court. The Jews could, but only the priests could go into the holy place. You had to be a tribe of the tribe of Levi. You had to be a descendant of, of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. But then there was another uh, arena called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. And only the high priest could go in there and he could go only in there one time a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, okay? And so it's amazing here that he draws this parallel. Who saw the glory of God in the Old Testament? Well, the high priest did in a sense, but even he couldn't see the glory of God because there was the altar of incense. And there was, you know, it was foggy, it was misty. And it was a shield that served as a barrier between the worshiper and God because no man can see God and live. Okay? Not even the high priest. But here, the presence of God is localized, not in a physical tabernacle made with wood or whatever, but in a body. 
The presence of God is now localized in the body of Jesus Christ. And notice it says we beheld his glory. Amazing. Now, interesting thing. If you, if you were in the wilderness and you came upon the tabernacle, you know, if you were just walking around and you came upon the tabernacle, nothing outwardly would make you think, well, this is something great going on in here. It was very plain on the outside. Now, on the inside, it was beautiful. Beautiful furnishings. And I think it was, so it was with Jesus. I don't think he walked around with beams of light emanating from him, you know, when he walked into a room. I don't think that he had this, uh, this amazing glow that everybody saw him and they're like, whoa, no. I believe that his glory was much like the Old Testament tabernacle. Only to those that receive him. Only to those that dared to enter in or allow him to enter into them. That was the interesting paradigm in the Old Testament is that God had a temple for his people to go to. In the New Testament, the people are the temple and God dwells inside of them. Another sermon for another time. What about the glory? How is this, this thing glorious? Well, we, when we see Jesus Christ for who he is, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. We see him. Those of us who are born again, we see the glory. Even in the cross. See, to the world and to the devil, I'm sure at the time, the, the cross seemed like a colossal failure. But the cross was not a failure. The cross was a glorious thing. It was a perfectly executed plan that was conceived before the foundation of the world. And the princes of this world did not know that because if they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. You see. That's why Paul says, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is glorious. The resurrection is glorious. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried. Again, we see the, the, uh, the outward expression of John the Baptist preaching and heralding. This was he of whom I spake. He who comes after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. Wow. I thought, I thought John was older than Jesus. Well, he was. About six months older. As in earthly. But Jesus Christ was preeminent. Jesus was born... Before the world. Jesus was alive before the world was. In the beginning was God. The word was with God. The word was God. I'm not sure that John the Baptist understood um, the eternality of Jesus. I think maybe he speaks better than he knew. That happens in the, in the gospel sometimes. Let me give you a couple of examples. Caiaphas. Caiaphas, he was not a godly man. But Caiaphas prophesied that one man should die for the people. He spoke better than he knew. He didn't understand what he was doing. I'll give you one more. How about Pilate? Pilate insisted, even while others protested, Pilate insisted that over Jesus was this inscription. What? The king of the Jews. You see, he spoke better than he knew. He didn't really understand that. And I think maybe John didn't understand the eternality, but he spoke better than he knew. But one thing John the Baptist did know, he knew that Christ was preeminent. He was the supreme ministry. He was the true light. He was not that light, but Jesus was the true light. Verse 16, we're almost done. And of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. And all of God's people ought to say amen right there. <laughs> you know, when I look over the landscape of my life and I survey all of the foolish things that I've done and I survey all of the sinful choices that I've made, it is a marvel that God has not just struck me dead at some point in, in the past. It is a miracle 
that I am alive and well, that I'm breathing today. It's a miracle that I'm breathing today. It's a miracle today that I'm not in prison. You know, we look down at folks sometimes and we say, how could they end up in prison? Listen, sometimes the only difference between you and them is they got called. Come on. The only difference between them and you is they got called. I won't dwell on that thought. But I look back on the landscape of my life and I think, thank God for grace. Amen. Think back to some times when I was in some really low places. Thinking I would never be in ministry again. Let alone preaching the gospel. And if not for grace. If not for the grace of God, we have all, everybody in this room has received grace from God. Yes. The air that you breathe is a grace from God. The Bible says that it's in Him we move and we have our being. We have, if you have food on your table, you got shoes on your feet, if you have a warm place to sleep, you have a roof over your head, you have received the grace of God. Amen. You might not acknowledge it, but you are a recipient, a beneficiary of the grace of God. Moving on, verse 16. And of his fullness, I'm sorry, verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now this is not to suggest that there was no grace in the Old Testament. There certainly was. The word of God is gracious. You know, the word of God is a lamp to our feet, a light into our path. Even those Old Testament sacrifices were gracious. God made provision for the people to have fellowship with him. He could have just left us to our own devices, but he, he devised that whole Levitical system whereby people could approach and have fellowship with God. That was gracious. So he's not saying that there was no grace in the Old Testament, but rather that this is the culmination of both grace and truth. You've got to have both. Grace without truth is heresy, and truth without grace is legalism. The letter kills. The law kills. It's the spirit that gives life. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of both grace and truth. Jesus never watered down sin. Never did. Never did he confront, never did he say, it's okay for you to sin. He would say things like, go and sin no more. But he would also turn around and say, I don't condemn you. He offers grace, but he offers truth along with it. He's full of grace and truth. Verse 18. You thought we'd never get here, and here we are. Praise God. No man has seen God at any time. You know, this is a well-established truth. You can go back in the Old Testament and, and think back to Moses. I think there's an allusion here to Moses. I, I really do. If you remember, Moses, he made a petition of God. And he said, God, I want you to show me your glory. Now, remember what John had just said? John had just said we beheld his glory, right? The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Moses said, God, I want you to do something for me. Now, Moses and God were friends. And I love to read the interchange. I love the exchanges between these people who are friends with God. You read it in a whole new light when you understand that Abraham and God were friends. You understand that Moses and God were friends. Jesus said, I called you friends. You and I can be friends of God. We can choose to be something else, but wouldn't you rather be a friend of God? Amen. Friend of God. Okay? Moses is God's friend. And Moses said, God, I want you to do something for me. I want you to show me your glory. And God says, well, Moses, I can't do that. We're friends, but even though we're friends, if you look at me, you're dead. I mean, that's, that's, that's going to be the end result if you look at me. He says, however, here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. Oh, that'll preach. 
I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll go beyond you. I'll proclaim my goodness. And you'll see, the Hebrew actually implies this, the afterglow. So you can see my afterglow, but you can't see me. You, but you can see the afterglow. And Moses, he caught a glimpse of that glory. <laughs> and if you remember, when Moses came down from the mountain, the people were like, you need to put a hood on. Because <laughs> this was just too much. It was too, too, too terrifying, too glorious. No man has seen God at any time. However, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. It's interesting that this guy writes that. This is the one that was in Jesus' bosom, remember, at the Last Supper. John was the one who leaned on Jesus' bosom. He was the one that knew something of intimacy with God. He, this verse right here, verse 18 of the prologue, is setting us up for all of the goodies we're going to see in the subsequent weeks, okay? This is the setup right here. Don't miss this. This is the summary. This is the setup. No man has seen God at any time. He says, however, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, the one who before the earth was made, before anything was made, he and the father were face to face, prostantheon in the Greek. The word was with God. It says that he has declared him. Now, that word declared is where we get our English word exegesis, or to explain, or to expound. And so what John is letting us know here is that Jesus Christ is God. He was with the Father in the beginning. He has perfect knowledge of the Father. He is the only begotten Son of God. And that gives us some idea of just how precious Jesus is to the Father. And what a tremendous sacrifice it would be for God to so love the world to give this one he was in perfect fellowship with before the foundation of the world. To come and die on a cruel cross. And it was the most primitive thing. I don't care how you depict the cross. Nothing could depict how, how awful it was that day. And he did it for you and me. Jesus did it willingly. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He had declared Him. Okay? So before we go any farther in the Gospel of John, John says, I'm about to show you some things about God. And you're going to see and hear the things about God from the one who is most uniquely qualified to explain to us how God is because He's the only one who's ever seen Him. Because He came from heaven to earth to show the way and this only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father he is going to explain what God is like and that's how Jesus could say to those beloved disciples if you've seen me you've seen the father would you stand page 308 now the prologue records a tragedy 308 he says that he came into his own and his own received him not. That's tragic. But you don't have to leave here today with that tragic thing hanging over your head. Go on to the next verse. But as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become the children of God. Amen. God will give you the authority. You can leave here today, not just a creation of God, even though you're a marvelous creation. You can leave here today, not just a creation of God, but a child of God. 
on your way to heaven with your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The invitation is open for you. Your only exhortation is to receive him. Would you do that? Would you come as we sing? Thank you.